Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. I'm getting, I'm getting really tired of these car chases in L.A. It seems like every, all the time we're getting car chases. There's been three this week, and what they do is, yesterday's one was two, hour, two and a half hours, and they put them on TV so you can't watch anything else. And you sit there, and I just think, first of all, I think some of these car chases may be sponsored by new cars. Because this guy, earlier this week, drove 100 miles on a flat tire. And if I was going to buy a car, and I saw a guy being able to drive that far on a flat tire, that'd be a selling point. And I'm just saying we have to stop it because no other no other area shows these car chases. No other has car chases. But we have them like every every two or three times a week. And it's just it's a pain in the ass, especially when you want to watch Hoda and Kathy Lee do an ambush, an ambush makeover. So anyway... We have a great show today. I got to tell you, years ago, if you had said, um, I remember seeing this gentleman, Bandy's involved with, years ago, I saw him at my college, uh, Stockton State back then, and that was in 1985. And if you had said to me, oh yeah, you know, in years from now, you'll be talking to this gentleman, I would have said, ah, you're crazy. But I am, thanks to the, uh, the, the magic of Skype, and my guest is Eric Bazilian. How you doing, Eric? Just great, Steve. How are you? I'm good, man. So, uh... So, yeah, so you don't see a lot of car chases in Philly, do you? That doesn't come on TV, does it? Well, really, we get the really good ones, you know. Um, I don't know I don't know, if the, I don't know what kind of coverage the OJ one got in Philly. I was in Germany, and we watched that, we watched that whole thing live in Germany. It's amazing. But, so, yeah, it is. But I don't think we get that many. I don't think, we don't get that many good car chases and it's, in Pennsylvania. And that's good. I mean, there's so much. They're on here so much, and it's just it takes away from TV. So... Anyway, we want to talk about you, my my fine gentleman. Um, now, you 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 started playing piano at five. Is that true? Yeah, sort of. You know, I started tinkling around a bit, and then um, uh, I started taking lessons. I think I was six, but I was a lousy student. I didn't have any. Well, I don't think I had the greatest teacher in the world, and um, I didn't have the patience to, to practice and play the the uh, the, the Hannon and the the little exercises I wanted to play what I wanted to play. And so, well, now, now your mother played piano, right? She still does. My mother is, yeah, my mother is, she's got some chops. She's uh, she's really kind of stunning when she plays. Now, is that why you did, yeah, did, did, um, did No, I mean, I think I grew up appreciating music because I heard it all the time. She was always playing it, and... I have a really early memory of sitting next to her on the bench and just seeing her rocking back and forth and side to side to Chopin and thinking, I want to I get that feeling. Except I got it in a slightly different way, different kind of rocking. Yeah, so, you, so you, you sat there, you took a piano, but then when did you decide to start playing guitar? My uncle, actually both my uncle and my aunt, not, not, not married couple, my my mother's sister and my father's brother both played guitar, folk guitar. It was very popular back then. So uh, my uncle taught me my first chords and my first couple of songs, and my aunt showed me a few things. And by the time I was nine or ten, I was on a on a local TV show here. I played, I played El Preso Numero Nueva and sang it in Spanish. What? A, uh, which, what show not? was it? I mean, you know, was it was it Gene London? Yeah, it was Gene London. Yeah. <laughs> oh my! I watched that as London? a kid. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but I guess he. I guess he was still on. He's still around too. 
Well, no, so so you, how did you get that booking? That just seems random. And why did you sing in Spanish? I, somehow, my, well, my my uncle knew him. I think somehow, um, and uh, I sang in Spanish because I liked the song, and there was a cool guitar part. So I learned how to sing it in Spanish. You know, I didn't know that was hard. <laughs> so you play on Gene London, and now now when did you, is at that point did you say? This is going to be my livelihood, or I mean, what made you start to follow that no. career path? You know, I, I, what, what made me follow that career path is what made probably everyone else my age who followed that career path follow that career path. February 9th, 1964, Ed Sullivan showed the Beatles. And so that just it was that was it. I mean, it was midway around, um, probably probably during "Please Please Me." I think they did that in the first one, like the third or fourth song. And I just had the vision. I just I said that I want to do that. And I remember first looking at Paul and thinking I want to be like him. Then I looked at John and I thought, no, I want to be like him. Then I looked at George. I thought, you know, it'd be fun to be like him. Then I looked at Ringo and said, nobody's having more fun than him. <laughs> and then I realized that I just wanted to be all four of them. So you knew that it got stuck in your head. And then so where do you go from there? Do you start forming bands? I mean, you're already playing guitar. Did you really? Did you really buckle down and try to learn the guitar? Did you start listening to a lot of music and trying to play it? I buckled down. I put this pedal to the metal. I formed my first band that night. I was watching it with my friend Bernie, Bernie Bornstein. And we said, let's start a group. So we brought our friend Paul Kaufman across the street in. And, um, you know, I, I, had the, I had a leg up because I played some guitar. But I wanted to be like George, uh, like, like Paul, because like Paul was you know, the shiny, charismatic one. So I wanted to play bass. Uh, so I actually went out and got myself an electric bass, and we assigned... Uh, Bernie wanted to wanted to play drums. He wanted to be like Ringo, and then Paul had to play guitar. But we realized pretty early on that it was a lot easier to teach somebody how to play one note at a time on the bass and to show them how to play a guitar part. So I, I quickly switched over to guitar. And so you guys, did you start getting gigs then, or what, what, did you start practicing? I mean, what kind of, what's, were you just playing Beatles songs, or what kind of music were you playing? We were playing, you know, what was popular then, which was the Beatles. Uh, I remember we did House of the Rising Sun, we did some Dave Clark Five, we did, you know, British Invasion stuff. And um, our first gig was our sixth grade graduation party. So man, you were, my house. that was, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, sixth grade and you're, you're rocking. And, and I skipped a grade, so I was 10. So I did my first my first gig with my first band at ten, and then um, of course I went away to camp that summer because that's what you did. And when we came back, we were on the Gene London show again that fall as the Limestones. Now, now how did you how did you get the name the Limestones? I knew that the first band that John and Paul were in together was called the Quarrymen, so it was just sort of a a, a, a jump of reason, of a jump of logic to go from. Quarry to limestone. See, now, I mean, you guys—they—they they really took control of you. I mean, you had the, the thinking just following in the like their footsteps to the bands and stuff like that. I mean, they really—it was a big revelation for you when you saw that. You know, and it still is. I still watch those. I watch those those shows. Um, I actually have the DVDs of the entire the entire uh, show, all four Ed Sullivan shows that they were on. Um, and it, it's so cool to see them in context of who the other acts were, like Frank Gorshin. Okay. Um, uh, the original cast of Oliver with Davy Jones. 
um, Tessie O'Shea, uh, some Austrian uh, uh, com- comedic magician. You know, this is who the Beatles performed with. It's amazing, you know, and it's so amazing because back then, and you don't see the variety show is so impactful, and so was like the, the talk shows, you know, and, and it really could it could change people and change, you know, careers and the people watching getting inspired. It, it was a time. So you're playing in a band, you're 10 years old, you skipped a grade, so I guess you're very book smart. So now you hit the high school years. What's, what's your goal when you're going to high school? I know you, you went to Penn, right? Yeah, that was college. Right. I know you, but, but did you decide in high school you were going to go to a nice an Ivy League school, or did you sit there and want to follow music? Uh, I, I really wanted to follow music. Um, college was something that was just sort of expected of me. I, I, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't. Uh, both my parents had gone to Penn. My grandfather had gone to Penn. Uh, it was the only school I applied to. I, I think I was sort of half hoping I wouldn't get in so I wouldn't have to go to college. And I don't know how I did get in. I guess it was a lot easier back then. I don't know. It's still, it's still an Ivy. So you go to this Ivy League school now, and you're, what, you major in physics? Yeah, yeah, I did. You know, um, my plan B was medical school, um, which I was actually kind of, into uh, you know I loved science before the Beatles I was going to be the first prepubescent in outer space okay <laughs> I was all over the astronauts and and you know rockets and then I got into electronics and I actually got got my ham radio license when I was nine and started building my own gear so so you were you were pretty advanced with that but then you decided you know you'll go you go into physics now now when do you start are you are you playing music when you're in college still or you do you have a band formed well you know actually my first real band was uh, with, with Bernie, again, Bernie from the Limestones, who was really, you know, my best friend from the, one of my two best friends from the time I was six um, when we were 15 we found a uh, another Paul, who was an amazing singer and a great rhythm guitarist and he wrote songs, and we found a great drummer, and we formed Evil Seed and we started playing, you know wherever, wherever they'd have us we played at the B-ins of Belmont Plateau, we played at uh, coffee houses, and it was a great band. I gotta say, it was really, um, it's a shame, it's a shame we didn't stay together. There were some uh, uh, personality issues that, that, and you know, plus it was the 60s and people got into some pretty debilitating stuff. So, Um, well, by now it was the 70s. Actually, we, we formed the band, I think at the end of 69, 70, and um, but it was a great band. I mean, it really, um, um, in some ways, um, you know, I look back very fondly on on that time. Uh, and that band happened to break up right around the time I, I finished high school. So then you go off to college, and you still want to pursue music. So how do you how do you start it up another band up when you're in college? Well, here's the deal. My first semester, aside from taking, you know chemistry and in biology and English and history, uh, I took one class in the music department. It was electronic music. And uh, Penn had and still has the third Moog synthesizer, which was, you know, the, filled up the entire room. It was monophonic, one note at a time. And um, I walk in there the first day and I see a guy who looks familiar, got blonde hair down to his waist. And I realized that I had seen him in a band that uh, 
a couple of times. He was in a band that was kind of that had, had some local notoriety, a band called Wax, and his name was Rob Hyman. So we just sort of started talking, and his band had lost their guitar player. At that point, they had two drummers, two electric pianos, a bass player, and a singer, and I was a guitar player with no band, so I joined. I joined Wax. And, and how? That was the beginning of our of our association partnership. So you guys, you start this band, Wax, and then does Wax break up very quickly, or how long is Wax together? Well, bear in mind, Wax had already been together for a couple of years. And in fact, they had gotten signed to a record deal, which didn't work out, and they had they had had some personnel changes. And um, so, I, you know, I joined them at a transitional time. And once again, now uh, Rob and Rick Trudoff, who was the drummer in the band, who you know went on to produce the early Hooters albums, and and Cindy Lauper and Joan Osborne, he's you know legendary guy. Um, they graduated at the end of my freshman year, so the band broke up, and I just went to college, and then I started another band my sophomore year, and had that all through all through uh, college, and right around the time I was graduating. Uh, Rob and Rick and David, who was this, uh, David Kagan, who was the singer in Wax, they had gotten a record deal with Arista. It was a, they didn't really have a band. It was just the songs that David and Rob wrote. Uh, Rob was the piano player, and the band was called Baby Grand, and they brought me in to be the guitar player. And now you were, you, you did two albums with them. We did two albums. We did some, did a couple of tours. Uh, we were either way ahead of our time or way behind our time, but whatever, we were not for our time. And, and uh, uh, I think they call it failure to thrive. Okay, so you guys, you disband, and now then you start the Hooters. Yeah, the Hooters was sort of um, our uh, our last band. We're going to give it one more try. And um, uh, at that point, David, the singer, had left, and you know, Rob, Rob, and I. Was, looked at each other and said you know look you know he said to me can you sing i said i don't know can you sing he said i don't know so we said well let's let's just see if we can no. and um, you know we found that we had a really good blend singing together which was cool because you know john and paul awesome now, how did you come up with the sound? Because your, your sound was different. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, you know, you know, because I mean, I remember listening to MMR and hearing you guys, and we all knew, you know, we we. I mean, I had I had the uh, after we heard you guys, you know, I had the little Casio keyboard that I yeah. I would try to figure out like the different things. And I I'm honestly, when it comes to music, I am like tone deaf. I mean, my my dad played sax. Uh, my sister played the French horn and the cello. My brother was a really good drummer. Me, I sucked, and I swear to God, I I could I tried to play and play that damn beginning of your songs, and and I couldn't. But how did you guys involve all these different instruments? Because it was a, it was a very fresh sound. Well, here I'll, I'll go back to the beginning. When we decided to to give it one more shot in 1980, we wanted an angle. We wanted something that would set us apart from from all the other rock you know rock bands. And you know up until then we had been kind of progressive I guess you know we use very challenging chord changes uh, I played as if I was getting paid by the note um, you know we were kind of in like the Steely Dan world and we said you know enough of that and the the British ska thing was starting to happen and Rob had grown up on reggae he, he, he started going, going to Jamaica when he was a kid with his family and he turned me on to it and then around that time bands like Madness and the Specials 
and, and the English beat were starting to come over here. We went and saw them, and we, our minds were blown. So we said, you know what, let's do that. Let's, let's be a ska band. So, uh, and, and we got really lucky, because uh, I had gotten to know David Wasikinen, and um, I'd gotten to know his band, the, uh, which at that time was called Hot Property. They were breaking up, and they had a great bass player and a great guitar player. So I said, let's just take them. We've got a band, ready-made band. So that was that was the original Hooters, David, uh, Rob, me, uh, John Kuzma, and Bobby Woods, and um, uh, pretty early on playing the ska stuff, we thought it'd be really nice to have a sax solo, but uh, we don't want to hire a sax player. So I thought, shit, how hard can it be? Uh, my friend uh, um, Greg Scott loaned me an, an alto sax, showed me the notes, and two weeks later we did our first demo recording, and we recorded a ska instrumental called "Man in the Street," and I played a solo. Wow. And MMR started playing it in heavy rotation. And all of a sudden, I'm a sax player. And it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> so now, now the, what, what is that, the keyboard you play? What is it actually called, uh, the, the band plays? What was, was that? It, it's, it is, it's made by Honer, and it's actually called a melodica. And the band is named for that. And the way that happened was when, when we were doing our very first demo recording, um, which was actually just me and David and Rob, uh, I had um, I had borrowed borrowed a melodica from another band I was working with because um, Augustus Pablo, the, the great Augustus Pablo, reggae dub artist, used one, and we thought it'd be cool to try it. So the engineer said, "Let me get a level on that Hooter." And we looked at each other and said, "Okay, it's a Hooter. From now on, it's a Hooter." And the way the band got we went from calling the instrument a hooter to calling the band the hooters was we were looking for a name we wanted a plural noun like a la the beatles the rolling stones the whalers so that everyone in the band could say i am a whatever okay but not a but not a household object like you know the tables the chairs it had to be something special hooters was pretty special and bear in mind this predates the restaurants right by five years and it even predates the vernacular for Hooters as breast. Right, okay. <laughs> so we, we could not foresee any any of the doom that was to come. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, you think about it when you, you know, if you, if you Google the Hooters, you know, you're going to get the restaurant or, and it's yeah. like, and you guys are before them and that's what's crazy about the internet and how things change. I mean, you know, the Hooters is supposedly, you know, named after an owl, but, you know, we know what it's yeah, named after. Yeah, we know we better. We know. But so so you get the band, the Hooters, and then you guys are getting some heat from MMR. MMR is playing the song you were playing. Yep, they started out playing playing Man in the Street, and then we, we did a single, and they started playing that. Uh, you know, we started out playing five nights a week at, 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 a, at bars in Levittown, uh, wherever they'd have us. And then uh, by 81, we started playing every Monday night at Grendel's Lair which was um, uh, on, Sad uh, on South Street in Philly. It later became a Tower Records. I think it's a gap now. Okay, I remember, I remember, the, I remember the Tower Records because I remember my right. roommate from college was from Hong Kong, and uh, we, we were visiting our friend who lived on South Street, and Brian Ferry, uh, the best of Brian Ferry and Roxy Music came out, and I was quicker than him, and I had longer <laughs> arms, so I grabbed the last CD. But, but he got even because years later, he stole my Pretty in Pink soundtrack CD. So, oh yeah, it sucks. So, so you got you guys are playing now. Now, when do you when do you start writing? When do you get into the whole writing thing? And how did you guys share your writing responsibilities? Well, 
that was, you know, that's really what started the whole thing. It was, um, you know, originally I was really just the guitarist and occasional backing vocalist uh, and arrangement arrangement helper in Baby Grand. Um, I they they sort of let me into the songwriting process, and then Rob and I developed a, a dynamic of our own. And then after um, Baby Grand broke up, we just started writing songs. Now, and actually, yeah. No, go ahead. And um, you know, we, we tried a bunch of different stuff, different kinds of different styles. Um, but then when we had the concept for the Hooters as sort of a, a ska and reggae thing, the oldest surviving Hooters song actually is All You Zombies. We wrote that in January of 1980, and that was the first song we, we wrote we knew that we were going to be playing this song for a while. Now, what was the what was the uh, thinking behind when you wrote that song? I mean, was there was there a story behind that when you came up with the idea? There is no thinking behind writing songs. Thinking is the enemy. Okay. Um, we were we were playing some chords. We landed on those chord changes and we started singing. All you people, show your faces. All you people in the street. All you sitting in high places. And we'll figure out the last line later. And then we thought people wasn't, maybe we could find a better word than people. And I think it was Rob that suggested the word zombies. Um, and I knew that was, that that was the right word. And it, something in me resonated when he said, all oh, you zombies. And it wasn't, it took a couple of years for me to re remember where I knew that phrase from. It was a, a science fiction story by Robert Heinlein that I'd read in like seventh grade. Wow. That's so cool. So, so you wrote that song. That song. I mean, that was your first song you wrote, and you still play that, which is just amazing because it's still it, it has legs. You know, it's like and that's funny is people remember that if you talk. Oh yeah, you know the Hooter. Oh yeah, all you zombies. It, it's just funny how people know different songs, but that's maybe because the name was different or just something. People really remember that song. Well, it's you know, and then and then it's got you know the Bible story lyric uh, verses, which was just totally wacky. And that was that was something that popped into my head. I. I heard a voice singing the opening line, singing, Holy Moses met the Pharaoh, in that kind of Paul Robeson baritone. And, um, you know, we just we just said, what the hell? Well, let's roll with it. And uh, I, I think the song kind of wrote itself. So now you guys, are, you guys are playing in Philly. You're writing the songs. Now, what is what did you feel started breaking you guys big? Was it MMR? Because I mean, I mean, as I, I told David too, I had your I had your first Amore. I had that uh, mm -hmm. that that album. I guess yeah, what I called it, but, but I think it was five songs and eight songs. Eight, eight. songs. I remember because I worked at, at a restaurant on the Jersey Turnpike, and me and this other guy loved your band. And I went and back then, I think I went to the Char I grew up in Cherry Hill. I went to the Cherry Hill Mall. There probably was a Sam Goody. There was a Peaches. But it was, yep. uh, I mean, there was, there was one of them, and I, I know we used to ride our, me and my friend when we were little, we used to ride our bike to the one store and get albums. And if our parents had found out, we drove our bikes around Ellisburg Circle, they would have hung us. But, yeah. but so that was that, when you got that album together, did you think it would really take off like it did? Because it sold a lot of copies in the Philadelphia area. Yeah, it sold 150,000. Um, we knew it would. I mean, by the time we, we did that, we had we'd already released three or four singles. Um, MMR was really, really behind us. Um, uh, you know, uh, we, we were selling out everywhere we played, and uh, you know, it was just so there was just this wave of, of hooterization going on, and we we kept hoping that we'd get signed to a major label, and 
and you know have have immediately become a, a national international act, but that didn't happen. You know, for whatever reason, part I think partially because we were in Philadelphia, and it was really hard for a Philly band to get out of Philly back then. Um, you know, the, 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 all the, the record companies were in New York, and they'd say, "Come play New York." So you'd go to New York, and you'd play to thirty people who right. never heard of you. You know, you know, you try to get them to come down here and see us play the Tower. You know, see us, you know, play them open for for uh, for in, in excess at the Man. You know, now they they won't get on the train. So um, finally, in 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 '83, we said, you know what, the hell with it. We're going to make our own record. And we, you know, we we got we got a little budget and made a deal with Studio Four, and um, we took about a month to make the, between gigs. You know, we're gigging the whole time to put the record together. Did you guys ever play Emerald City? Oh yeah, a whole bunch of times. In All fact. Right. The, um, I, the first or second time we played there, we got to open for the English Beat, and it was a live broadcast. And they started playing "All You Zombies" from that from that live broadcast, which is why it became our second single. That live recording of "All You Zombies." Now, what was your what was your first single? It was "Fighting on the Same Side." Okay, and then the "All You Zombies," and then off that album, what were the two other singles you had? Um, off of "Amore," well, now bear in mind. It was, completely different versions of the songs and then Amore were already re-records of the original versions fighting on the same side um, we had done the, the that single in 80, 81 I think and then um, you know the All You Zombies single was live um, then uh, when we did Amore we re-recorded All You Zombies we re-recorded fighting on the same side in a, in a different key um and there were a couple of other songs that we that we yeah we had already recorded hanging on a heartbeat we had done a four track demo of that that MMR played the crap out of and then we we recut that um and that was sort of the single from um from from Amore so the the Amore selling is 150,000 copies which is great I mean you know especially it was mostly so locally and it wasn't like now you couldn't get music online you know what I mean it's like that's what people right. don't understand you had to go either and even then bands weren't really selling stuff at shows I mean that's something new I mean you know but so you're selling these so then how do you how then how do you get the record deal that then with Columbia well Rob and I have always had a side gig which is making records with other people so in 82, Rick Chertoff, the aforementioned ex, now ex-drummer, good friend, and now A&R staff producer at Columbia, is doing a record with a young artist named Cindy Lauper. So he brings us aboard as, as the band. We spent six months at our studio in Maniunk with my four-track recorder, my uh, little 808 drum machine, uh, Rob's keyboard and my guitar and bass and saxophone, and we demoed up the entire She's So Unusual album. We went to New York, recorded it for real. It comes out. It's undeniable. And, you know, we are undeniably the sound of that record. So, you know, we've got too much too much musical credibility to be ignored at that point. And, and we're now selling out the Tower Theater on our own without a label. Um, it was, you know, it was undeniable. At this point, the, the label started coming around. And um, since Rick was our guy and he was at Columbia... That was the natural choice. So that, that's how we ended up on Columbia. And so then now it's you're doing a 10-song album. 
Um, Was it yeah, 10? Uh, yeah, there were 10 songs on Nervous Night. And so now, is it, now you already have a lot of the stuff recorded, so what's the difference when you put it on this new on this new album for Columbia, was there just, did you have to do, make a different sound for each song or what was different? Because there are a lot of the songs that people... Well, we, we re-recorded everything. You know, once again, first of all, there was that, that thought of that concept that, you know, we couldn't have gotten it right the first time. You know, it ain't broke, let's fix it. Um, which is kind of what happened. I, I think we, kind of, we re-recorded Blood from a Stone and we kind of ruined it. We re-recorded Hanging on a Heartbeat with a radically different arrangement. A really cool arrangement. It would have done much better if we had written a new song to that new arrangement. Um, but but we re-recorded All You Zombies, and I I, I know there are people who prefer the uh, Amore version, but I will go down with the ship saying that the, um, the, the Nervous Night version of All You Zombies is the definitive version. See, that's good to know because, you know, it is true. Like when you listen to it, I remember listening to him, you get thrown off because I think it's like anything when you're used to something, it sticks and yep. you're, you're, sort of, you're sort of sometimes closed-minded. It's like, well, I don't want it. Like when they do remakes of movies, like I don't want to see that. But you did it and yep. you had the sound. So then you re- release this album and it starts selling. Uh, well, yeah, it really did. And, you know, it's funny that All You Zombies, the song, first song that we wrote for the band, uh, and a song which in the beginning was a throwaway. I mean, when we were doing four, four sets a night, we would start our first set with that to get it out of the way because we thought, who wants to, who's going to want to hear this song? And then all of a sudden, NMR starts playing the live version. It becomes our first single. It sells really well. Um, Amore comes it out. They play that version of it. We re recorded for Nervous Night. Now, the Nervous Night version is six minutes long. We wanted to make an epic out of it, which was really spearheaded by Rick Chertoff. At that time, we were very much inspired by Pink Floyd, by the, the Wall, and we, you know, we that that informed a lot of our our, our choices sonically, arrangement-wise, production-wise, for that recording. And um, but we also had and we danced, which sort of introduced the signature sound of my, the mandolin and the melodica. And you know, you know, you were talking earlier about how we we got we got all these different instruments and, and mostly it's just me because I just love playing with new toys so somebody had a mandolin and I started playing that thought cool okay that's part of our sound now you know along the way Rob got an accordion and uh, you know since then I've been playing hurdy-gurdy on stuff and, and mandola um, harmonica recorder I'm sure I'm forgetting half of half of the shit I've tried over the years. How, how did I mean? You think about it though. It's like how did that when you're recording something? How do people react when you say I'm going to bring a mandolin in? Because you know most people, if you if you ask about if you ask a hundred people in the street, and you know, I guarantee maybe twenty, maybe thirty five wouldn't know what a mandolin is. Well, it's become more common now. I mean, I think I think we influenced a lot of people. Um, you know, REM started using it about a year later on losing my erection. I mean, losing my religion. <laughs> um, you know, John Mellencamp started using it, but, but I, we were the first to, to, to use mandolin in, in rock music. Um, yeah, you know, people thought it was odd. But it, may, it, it, it adds to that song. That's what's great. I mean, that's one thing. You know, none of your, none of them, they all, they all sound like they belong. I mean, you know, there's sometimes you hear some stuff and you go, what the hell is that doing there? But yours all sounded the mice nicely blended. Well, that was you know that was the craft of what we were doing. 
you know, I mean, Rob and I had an instinct for it, and then you know, Rick, as our producer and and you know, outside ear, he was our George Martin. You know, he really helped us put it, put things in perspective. So the album starts selling, and now you know. And I know you're you're huge overseas. What is that like when it's a shift? You know, you're so used to playing Philadelphia all the time, and I'm sure it's like anything. You know, you, you live in the Philly area, so it's nice to be able to drive to a gig, come home. What's it like? When does your first tour? Like, when do they sit this record company and say, "Okay, you guys got to go on a big tour now"? Hello. Hello. Sorry about that. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were you were asking no, first, first tour. Yeah. Well, when when did you did the record company say okay you guys got a tour now to support this album and you were used to Absolutely. playing the Philly area. So the album came out in May of '85, and um, in June we went on the road with Don Henley. Um, it was just a, like a three week run, just just kind of something to get to get our feet wet, and um, um, it was it was great. You know, tour bus. Wow. Yeah, that works for me. Um, and um, we came off the road with Don Henley, and uh, we played Live Aid. Now, what's that like for a Philly kid to play? First of all, you know, it's funny. I was just watching that that's that CNN show about the '80s, and they they showed the Live Aid, some of the Live Aid clips. And uh, what's that like? I mean, you know, you're sitting there playing, and you know, JFK was uh, it was. Was it AF, JFK or RFK? JFK. JFK. That was like, I mean, I saw legendary concerts there. What is that like as, as someone who loves music? What is it like to be sitting there on this national, international stage where, you know, you're having so much exposure and so many people are watching it. What is that like and the energy you're feeling when you get up there? I don't remember. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was so quick. It was over before it started. We played two songs. We didn't get a sound check. We literally walked up, plugged in, and played. We did, and we danced, and all you zombies. And that was it. And we were done. It was like, we didn't know what hit us. That's just crazy. So so now you're, you're, your popularity is getting, you're touring. Now, how did you, what do you think made you become so big overseas? Well, it's funny, because Nervous Night didn't happen overseas, except for, uh, oddly, Australia. All you zombies went to number one in Australia. And they flew us there for four days in December 85 to do two shows and get our our platinum records on the Molly Meltram show, which he was like the Dick Clark of, of Australia. Um, but but it, it didn't really happen in Europe. So it wasn't until now one way home, uh, our second national international album, we made a concerted effort to to you know to bring more of our of our ethnic unusual sounds into it. So we had songs like Carla with a K, with the uh, you know the accordion and mandolin, Johnny B with the recorder, the mandolin, the harpsichord. Um, uh, you know, we re- we really just loaded it up, and I think it was a little left of center for the U.S. market. They were expecting more more of, and we danced. But for some reason, Germany and Scandinavia loved it, and Johnny B is like a song they sing at soccer matches over there still. See, that must be cool. That's, I mean, that's just the thing. I, I remember, it's funny, because I remember, well, just that I saw you at my college in, I think it was 85, and uh, it was at Stockton State, and Tommy Conwell opened for you guys. Yep. And I remember you guys were walking to your car in the parking lot, because we were walking back, and I think we said, hey, what's up? And, and, and you guys were driving rabbits. And, that's right. I had a rabbit. And you're, yeah, 
you're putting your stuff in and we're like, it was so cool. Like for us, it was like, oh my God. And we had a guy who went to our college who had, you know, he told us later, like a few years later, he went to school in Australia for a semester and he just said how huge you guys were. Yeah, it's funny. It was, it was such a spike. When we went down there, I thought, this is it. We, this is where our career is going to be. I'm going to move here. I'm going to raise my family here. And then nothing else happened. It's like we just fell off that half of the earth. Now, as you're playing with the Hooters, are you Hooters? Are you also because you've written for so many people? When did you really start doing a lot of the writing? Was it was it like later in your career? Because I mean, you know, you, you you know, you wrote for Joan Osborne and all these people. How did that all come through just from the beginning when you guys wrote stuff for Cindy Lauper? Yeah, I mean, Bear, I didn't I didn't actually write anything on the first Cindy record. Um, she actually, we actually cut fighting on the same side with her which for whatever reason didn't make the record, which is a shame because I would have made a boatload of money on that. Um, Rob ended up writing Time After Time with her, which was, you know, the first time I ever heard heard a, a rough draft of a song where I, I knew it was going to be a classic. Um, but um, Rob and I hadn't done a lot of writing for outside artists. We we wrote a bit, you know, for with Patti Smythe for her, her, her solo album. Um... And then it wasn't until really '93 that we met we met Joan Osborne and um, Rick. At that point, had started his own label and signed her. She was his first signing, and we started writing songs together for her record. Now, when you wrote, you know, God, did you know it would be a huge hit? I mean, as a writer, do you think something will be a hit when you write it, and that sometimes it doesn't happen? And is there also some songs that you write that you don't think are going to do that well, but they do? Does that ever happen with you? Well. Um, I usually know when a song's special. I, I don't, I mean, I, I've written songs that I know are special that haven't been hits. Um, uh, you know, one of us was an, that was just an oddball. I, you know, that was one, I, I went home one night after a session and my, and my, my, my new girlfriend who just moved over from Sweden asked me to show her how I recorded on my four track. And, uh, I, you know, I cut a little instrumental track and she said, sing it. And I said, okay, uh, put the thing in the record and, and that's what came out. And it never occurred to me that night that it was a, a song for Joan Osborne, but I knew that I had spoken some basic truth of the universe in, in, you know, in that lyric. And um, the next day I, I played it for everybody. I just said, you know, check out this wacky little song I wrote. And when, when it was over, um, Rick looked up and said, Joan, do you think you could sing that? And she said, yeah, I can sing the phone book, write out the lyrics. And she sang it. I played it. She sang it. We recorded it. I got in my car. I stuck the cassette in and heard it, and I knew. I started practicing the Grammy speech I should have gotten to give. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, as what is the feeling as the writer when you hear, I mean, that song was everywhere. It was on TV. And how does that process start? Do they go? Do they have to go come to you and say, you know, we want to use it for this TV show? I mean, how does it, does it go through the artist, yeah. or how does that work? They'd go to the publisher or whoever's administering the rights, and then they come to us, and we say yes or no, and they, uh, you know, negotiate the the particulars. And you know, that's how it got onto. That's that's why Doctor Evil was able to sing it on the, um, the Spy Who Shagged Me. So you said it was cool. Well, uh, what's that? You gave him the okay. Yeah, we, yeah. He gave me the money, and I gave him the okay. <laughs> And it was on a lot of stuff. So now you said you, you should have won the uh, Grammy. What happened there? Uh, you know, 
I lost. I, you know, I, mean, I was nominated. Got you know, just you know, time after time lost too. So I, I feel good. Rod and I are on the same, we're on the same footing there. No, I mean, you know, nobody knew who I was. Everybody knew who Seal was. That song had been in 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 the Batman soundtrack, and Kiss Kiss from a Rose won, fair and square. Now, after you write that and the song is doing very well, do people start seeking you out to have you write yes. for them? Oh, they sure do. I mean, all you know, all of a sudden I'm sliced bread. You know, and I had people coming in, come, you know, from my past coming out of the woodwork. I had new people coming to me. You know, you know, one of the one of the greatest things, career-wise and personally, that happens to me was that Desmond Child sought me out, and. Um, you know, you know, every, who, everyone knows who Desmond Child is. He's a legend. You know, he wrote, oh, yeah. he wrote, you know, he he, he wrote the phone book, um, and uh, he sought me out. He, he there, there was an artist he wanted to write with me for uh, an artist named Billy Myers, and we wrote her her single "Kiss the Rain," which was huge. Um, in the, when was that? Ninety eight, maybe ninety eight. I think is when it came out, and. Um, you know, through him, I got to know you know John Bon Jovi. Wrote, wrote a bunch of stuff with him. I had a song on his solo record. Um, that's been a very long and fruitful career. And you know, through that, I got involved with the Ricky Martin record, played all over it, and then Ricky ended up cutting "Private Emotion," which was a song from uh, from another Hooters album, a later Hooters album that, that no one ever heard of. So, how do you? I mean, as a songwriter, it says a lot about you that you can write for so many different genres. I just write, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's changed a bit, you know, I just actually just got back from a, a songwriting workshop in France with 21, 21 writers, most of whom were, you know, half my age. And, um, you know, now it's sort of divided into the track maker, you know, guy that sits with a computer and pulls in beats and sounds and, and you know, the, the, four, the four chord progression that makes up the whole song. And then what they call now call top liners, which is somebody who comes up with melodies and lyrics, and and you know that's that's the way they they do it. It's not as much people sitting around with guitars and pianos saying how about this, how about that, you know, jamming, getting into a groove, and and working it from there. But it was it was really amazing. I I, I had I had an amazing time. I, I learned a lot. You know, I, I wasn't always in my comfort zone, which was exactly what I wanted. Did you like? Do you want to change your writing style in some ways, or I mean, what do you mean by when you say not in your comfort zone? Well, you know, I'm, again, I'm used to sitting, you know, with with an instrument in my hands all the time and bouncing back and forth with other people. I mean, you know, now it's really kind of like, you know, I would come up with a guitar riff, and then if I wasn't the producer that day, the producer would record that and then chop it up and bring pull in his beats, and you know, all of a sudden there's the track, and it sounds like pop radio. You know, with the, all the program sounds, you know, synthesized drums. Um, I, you know, I'm an organic kind of guy. You know, my aesthetic is live drums, live bass, live guitars, pianos, Hammond organs. If it's synthesizers, it's analog synthesizers, non-auto-tuned vocals. You know, so a recording where it isn't the same exact vocal on every chorus. Okay. Um, but you know what? I, I really appreciate the artistry and what these guys do. There, there is great artistry. It's just it's a different aesthetic, and I'm totally down with it. I'm not going to change what I do, but I certainly will hope I get to continue to enjoy working with them. And we, you know, we find always would find common ground, and 
you know, I wrote seven songs last week. It was it was amazing. So you wrote seven songs. Now, now, when, now, did you guys record them over there? Who you in this workshop, or did you just wait till you come back oh, to record them? No, no, that, that's the thing. You record as you write. By the time the song's written, it's done. The track is done. Everything's done. Now, as a as a writer and a singer and a songwriter, you must really love. I mean, I know you have the old, you said you know you sit down and play, but you must love the fact that it is seems so much easier now for people to create. Well, you know, they say it's, you know it's leveled the playing field, it's democratized it. You know, I could be the curmudgeon side of me says it's enabled people who shouldn't who shouldn't be able to make records to make records. You know, the thing is, any any twelve year old can make something that sounds like a hit record now. You know, you you buy you buy a, a Mac, you have Garage Band, boom. Um, you know the you know the the whole weeding out process, the the you know the evolutionary Darwinian uh, gauntlet of um, starting a band, right, learning how to play an instrument, writing songs, getting out in front of people, getting an audience, in order to get someone to put you into a recording studio. That's gone. Everybody's got a studio. We had seven, eight studios running in, at, at this castle in France. I had one in my bedroom. Wow. So as you, as you were doing all the writing, and was it was you were still playing with the Hooters? What was was it still fun to play with those guys when you were writing so much? I mean, what's that like when you're? I mean, do you do you did you miss the live performances when you're really concentrating on writing? I found it was a great balance. Um, it was great to be able to go back and forth, you know, because I'd, I'd get tired of being. In the studio, I'd get tired of being in the writing room, and then I'd go on the road. Then I'd get sick of being on the road, and I'd go home and start writing and, and, and making records. Now, how'd you hook up with the Scorpions? Uh, they came to me, and that was just sort of somebody knew somebody who knew somebody, and next thing I know, I'm in Germany working with them. I love them. I had a great time with them. Now that's a, that's a different kind of music. It's the metal, but that must have been fun. Just plus, were you a fan of theirs before you started working for them? I was a bit of a fan. I mean, I, I was more a fan of of them as a band than I was of their records. But but uh, you know, as soon as I met them, I, I just hit it off with, off with them. I, you know, I loved Rudolph as a, as a as a guitarist and as a creative mind and as a person. And, and um, Klaus is, is an amazing singer, incredibly creative guy. Matthias is a killer guitar player, and you know, as a guitar player, I mean, I'm I'm first and foremost a guitar player. I do everything else just so I get to play guitar. Okay. Um, Matthias is one of the few guitarists I've worked with where I was really happy to say, "You do it." He's that good. He's that good. So now you know you were in France. Now you also you toured with I, I always screw the guy's last name up, Joe. Bonamassa. Now, how did how did that come about, and what was that like just to go on tour? Because this, you know, it's funny. I've, I've been seeing things on Facebook. He was coming here. He's coming there. How yep. did how did that happen for you to just go on the road with him? Did, did he know your work? Were you friends with him, or what happened there? His producer is a guy named Kevin Shirley, who I'd worked with years ago. I I, I co-produced a record for uh, for Amanda Marshall with him, and um, we just sort of stayed friends, stayed in touch. He tried to get me to to, to tour with Joe uh, four years ago. Joe was going to do a um, uh, an acoustic tour and a, and, a, and a DVD, and he wanted me to do it. I wasn't able to do it then, but uh, this year they were going to do it again, and he wanted a different band, and asked me, and 
you know, the last one I did was, was like a year. This was just three weeks. I'm like, yep, I'm in, cool. So now you have to go learn all the, all the songs then. Yeah, that was, yeah. yeah. Now, is, is that tough? Because it's something that's it's not what you wrote and, you, and you, you can play all these different instruments, but is it tough when you have to learn someone else's song? And, is, and what's the process? How long does it take? It took me longer than it took the others because I'm not used to it. Um, but I did okay. You know, fortunately, I was sort of like the, I was like the, the, the spice guy. You know, I played, man, I, I had two mandolins, a mandola, a dobro, a banjo, recorder, and, um, and alto sax on stage with me. So I was really just kind of adding spice to what everyone else was doing. Fortunately, Joe and the, 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 the piano player were sort of holding the fort down and so I could just kind of I could I could cruise a little bit well you played with him then you also played some uh, charitable shows over in Europe right yeah I did the light of day tour in December uh, in December that was a blast now what is that what that light of day is for what what is it bringing awareness to it's for uh, it's for Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's research. Okay, so you do that now. How do you get involved with that band? Does someone come? Because I think Vinnie Mad Dog Lopez was in that band. Yeah, Vinnie was on that. Fact, Vinnie just came to our show at the, in Atlantic City. So yeah, Vinnie, Vinnie and I became really good friends as a result of that. Well, there's a guy named Joe Durso who who actually started Light of Day, and and runs it. And he opened for the Hooters twenty years ago in in Sweden. In fact, he was at the first show that my wife ever came to. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the girlfriend that I wrote uh, one of us for is now my wife of 21 years. Um, but uh, Joe just, you know, cold called me, emailed me, said, hey, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, why not? So who was on that band? Um, it, well, it wasn't a band. It was like a, like a Nashville bluebird in the round kind of thing. You know, you know, each person would do a song and then you go around the circle. Um, so that was uh, Joe... Vinny, me, um, uh, oh God, kill me, his name, um, uh, Springsteen's other sax player, um, it'll come to me, give me a second, we'll, we'll get back to that, okay. and, and then Jake Clemens joined us, Okay. so we, I thought we were going to have two sax players, which I thought would be a little weird, but I didn't know that Jake's main gig is, um, he's a singer-songwriter. So now, when you guys were going around, would you would you play some Hooter songs? What would you play when it was your turn? Um, I did, yeah. I I would do, depending on where we were. Like in in the, in the, in Germany, I would play Johnny B, because um, that was our biggest hit in Germany. I would do One of Us, uh, probably do All You Zombies. I have a very different version of All You Zombies. I play myself, uh, more I'm more rock rocked out version of it. Um, in, in England, I played uh, Satellite, which was our the Hooters' biggest hit there, and I played All Before I Die, which was uh, Ro uh, Robbie Williams' first single that I wrote with with uh, Robbie and Desmond Child. So it's, a, it's a, everyone got a little different taste of everything. Yep, yep. So now, what was it like in AC the other night? I saw uh, uh, David had posted the first three songs, and you guys sounded really tight. I mean, but you've been playing together for years. What was that like? That like, is it like a homecoming when you play AC? I mean, what's it feel like? You know, playing oh, yeah. for the Philly people. Oh, it's awesome! Yeah, it's so it's totally home. It's like you know, these are these are our people. This is who we owe our owe our lives to. We wouldn't exist if it weren't for these people. It was quite an impressive set list. I always go after I see concerts. I always go to a. 
when I hear, I go to that, I Google, let's say for you, the Hooters AC set list, and there's that site that's called Setlist that you can always find out yep. what everyone played. So you guys, yep. you guys played a, a long show and you played two encores. Yep. Two, three song encores. And that was a short show for us. Well, in, in Germany, we'll do two and a half hours. Okay, so so does that does that get you guys? That's a long time. I mean, you, I mean, you know, you're not young guys anymore. I mean, does it does it get tiresome on stage, or is it just the adrenaline keeps you going? When we're on stage, we are young guys. And no, so now the Europe tour when you it's in when does it start? Um, we get on the plane next Tuesday, the seventh. And then would you land? So is it? Where do you where, where's your first show at? Hello. Hello. I think I lost him. I think we lost Eric. Let's see. We. I think we lost him. I think we lost. I think we lost Eric. We're trying to get through it. We're, we're running out of time, but. I think we lost him because uh, he was driving, I know, or he was somewhere where there wasn't a good uh, connection. But it's okay because, oh, I'm not getting through. Let's see if he calls me back. It's all right. It's not working. Let's see. He must have just cut out. He must have cut out. We're going to start talking. Well, people, here's what you do. I'll, 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 do my, uh, I'll do my stuff right now just, you know, because if he calls back, we can finish off with him. Uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. That's coopertalk.net. Or you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Go to iTunes. It's Cooper Talk, one word, as a Stitcher, one word. Also, uh, my cookbook, stopthesalt.com. That's stopthesalt.com. Go to the website. It's 120 recipes. Easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. You don't need cumin. You sit there, you go get it, and you buy the book. It's stopthesalt.com. Go sit there. Go buy it. You can get it at Barnes & Noble online. You can get it on Amazon.com online. But if you get it from me, you I make more money, and I will send it to you. Also, don't forget we have um, uh, Instagram. It's CooperTalk1. I do a lot of stuff there. And also we have um, – what's my other one? My other one. Oh, Words with Friends. Play me. We're going to try Eric one more time because we have like five minutes left. If not – it's all right. We had a good talk. I'm sure I'll get in touch with him. I think we just lost him here. I have his picture up there. Let's see if we can get him on here. And uh, he just uh, he got cut off. And that's okay because it's all good because it's Cooper talk. That's the sound we're making for Skyping. And uh, Eric? Steve. Hey, what's up? Yeah, sorry. I'm, uh, I, I, I had to drive through a, a no internet zone. No problem. We have only five minutes left. I already did my plugs already. <laughs> <laughs> to do it, but uh, okay. so, so yeah, so so you start so, off. Um, thing is, thing is, can we can we do it in about fifteen minutes? I got to pick my daughter up right now. Okay, well, you know what? No, that's that's you know that's good. We this is good for us. It's a good show. I got I got my hour. Okay, okay, we're cool. all we're all good. But I want to thank cool. you for coming on. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get to talk about you know the fact that we still do make records, from, Hooters records, from time to time. That you can talk about that. I'll talk about it. I'll just sit there because you got to. But uh, how can people get in touch with you? Um, Facebook, um, info at HootersMusic.com. And you tweet? Um, yeah, I tweet. The Hooters tweet. Um, I tweet more than the Hooters do. But um, uh, HootersMusic.com. 
All right, man. Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I got to catch up with you finally because I've been a fan for a long yeah. time. We'll be talking. You sent me that nice shirt at Christmas, which I do wear, and I appreciate that. Cool. And awesome. uh, yeah, so uh, keep up the good work. I'm, you know, I always check you guys out. I like to listen to you. And everyone, listen to the Hooters. Follow Eric Bazilian on Twitter, and uh, be safe driving your daughter home. And it was good talking to you, Eric. Okay. Likewise. Take care. All right. Take it easy.